Welcome to the Reroute Safety Podcast, Episode 5. On today's episode, we have the president of PSS Innovations, David Cowan. David has been working for PSS for over 35 years now, and he and his team have brought several different innovations to the marketplace, most notably the temporary rumble strips. They have also worked closely with the ADA community, and they continue to refine their traffic control devices. So without further delay, let's enjoy this amazing episode. David, welcome to the show. Ben, well, thanks for having me. So let's uh, start off with the basics. Just at the very core, what, what qualifies a good product or idea? You know, it's been uh, been in this 30-some years, and it's, that's, a, that's a great question. That I think it really depends on, on who's asking the questions. Um, to, to be considered a good product, I, I think it really entails, is it, is it marketable? So what we've tried to do is talk to the people out there that are knowledgeable in a specific market. We cannot be that knowledgeable in all these different markets. So when talking to, if it's, uh, say, a traffic control engineer, um, I think it's uh, I think it's really important that um, uh, that you stay close and you uh, I guess I guess it's really a relationship that uh, you can develop and you find out what problems they're having and I think from that then you can determine what is it going to take to solve the problem so it's kind of hard to answer what what makes a how do you determine what a good product is i think it has to solve a problem that's uh that's that's out in the field yeah i i tend to break it down into i don't know three ideas of will this product work you know will will it do what their intending intended purpose is right um how much will it cost to make it you know develop the product and actually bring it to market and then you know how much how how big is that market you know how how much is that product really worth once you get it there and um correct me if i'm wrong but it seems it seems to me that if two two of those three legs are large enough um it, it will actually kind of compensate for the third one so if it will really really work and um it it's worth a lot of money then how much it will take to, to bring it to market isn't as bit of a factor. Or um, if it's very easy to bring to market and there's a really big market for it, um, it doesn't have to work perfectly is kind of my idea. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, yeah it's interesting because I, you know, just looking at the experience, we came up with the, the drum that uses the tire collar, the rubber collar that goes around it. Um, and that's, that became very, very successful. It really developed out of a need to try and get rid of sand. Uh, everybody hated sandbags. And our, we had a drum that used sandbags. Uh, it was a one-piece drum. It was a little unusual. And I, I kept getting uh, questions of why, why can't you get rid of the sand? The sand, I'm, I'm, paying, I'm paying laborers 20 bucks an hour to fill sandbags. Can't you get can't you get rid of that? 
So the need was to try and uh, reduce cost. And we went to work on it and eventually came out with a, uh, we had designed a rubber ring that you would mold. And that was way too expensive, but I think it would have accomplished it. But sandbags were 50 cents a piece and molded rubber can be upwards of a dollar a pound or more. So for a 25 pound ring, you're looking at a you know, $25 and uh, versus a 50 cent sandbag. So, so that wasn't going to work. But when we finally stumbled upon a recycled tire, which now you drove the cost from $25 to down, uh, maybe down to 50 cents, all of a sudden now, now the market opened up. And then it had the advantages of being extremely durable. So, so from that standpoint, the cost certainly brought the tire collar ring into, into the fold. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so going on that point a little bit, um, do you think it's better to, uh, you know, this is kind of an industry of makers, uh, industry of creators. Um, do you think it's better to design things yourself or do you think it's better to, um, kind of come up with a design and then give it over to somebody who specializes in that area. So trying to do a little bit more contracting out or, or do you think that it, if possible, it's better to keep it in house? Well, most of the design, at least, uh, uh getting a, a product design on paper is, is something that we do. We do that a hundred percent ourselves. So I know there are some companies that can job that out. You can get, there's a company around here called Nottingham and Spurk, and they're a very creative company, and you can come to them with a concept, and then they will then take that concept and try and create a product out of it. But then they, there's a lot of financial stuff going on there. So we've tried to basically do all the engineering ourselves. As far as then how the product is manufactured, then that, that's a different story. And we typically don't do a lot of manufacturing in house because we get involved in so many different processes. Well, so when you're keeping the innovation and the the design in house, how do you how do you continue to have that that atmosphere of innovation? Yeah, it's uh, it's something that we're constantly working at. Uh, we 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 have uh, scheduled periodic meal uh, meals <laughs> meetings. <laughs> Uh, both on the engineering side with the engineering team, and then we also have a separate meeting with sales. So we're of the we're of the idea that there is that no no such thing as a bad idea. So we bring in the salespeople, and we have a brainstorming about what what's going on on the road. What what do the engineers need out there? What's what's good out there? What's bad out there? I don't like having my engineers on that meeting because. Uh, they go well. That's silly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can get a little bit of an a little bit of an attitude because they understand that how to make things and that that's going to be way too expensive. So we keep engineering out of that meeting. So then we finish with the sales guys. So then management, we go over to the engineer, and so we have a little bit of a different meeting. We kind of cherry pick the really good ideas and then sit down with engineering and say, okay, well, how how can we do this? And then we get more into the details of that. So. This is uh, this is an every month occurrence here at PSS. So I think a large part of uh, uh, of it is just focus. Well, I think that helps really helps with your your safety consultants as well, because then they're able to ask the engineers and ask their customers sincerely, you know, what problems they're facing, and not just be um, you know blowing smoke up their 
you know, where, but, but be able to generally ask questions and, um, seek to find solutions for them. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it does go back to the, to the relationships and, uh, being out there and not being afraid to pick up the phone and talk to people because they're, they're the ones that are going to give us the idea. We're, we're not necessarily going to come up with these fantastic ideas all by ourselves in a vacuum. It just doesn't work that way. We're not that smart. Well, and, and so if, if there is a, a, a DOT or a construction company out there who has a problem that they believe not only they need to be filled, but it, it, it's a, a problem for fellow contractors or fellow DOTs, and they think that there's a real market for it, or you know th this item really needs to be made and needs to be put on the road, how would they uh, how would they present it to a manufacturer like you guys? You know, you're mentioning relationships is really one of the core parts of that. Yeah, I think where that would normally start would be uh, just in an overall uh, conference call. And if if there is uh, the tricky part is if if someone thinks it might be a novel enough to have IP or have a patent associated with it. And in that case, what we would recommend is to sign that we would sign a, a non-disclosure. So we get we get a, a a somewhat of a legal agreement, nothing nothing major, maybe a few pages, that just says what you're going to share an idea with us, and that we're not going to take that idea and 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 run with it uh, without your permission. Um, so that's typically how those those get started. And once because you, you want the free flow of information. You don't if they don't know us that well, it's a little more difficult. If it's a good customer, then typically then these are not these are not issues. Uh, and then it's just sitting down with them and saying what's uh, what's going on out there. How can we help you? Yeah, and it seems like that's really where the uh, innovation that needs to happen actually takes place because. There's oftentimes these kind of out there ideas that come into our industry every year that they're coming from somebody just driving by a work zone saying, hey, they could really use this. And those don't really tend to be the things that we need. Those just kind of become like barnacles, if you will. They're not really a, a core need for the industry. You know, where we find those needs are, are from the people who are out there, you know, putting up the signs or, or setting up the construction or the DOT folks, you know, going to these from job to job and seeing these re reoccurring patterns. We always get better ideas from those. Absolutely, we we'll get calls uh, quite often from uh, inventors, quote unquote inventors, and they've uh, they've driven by work zones, through work zones, and so then they get the idea, but they've never worked in the industry. And and then they want to share the idea, and so we'll we'll, we'll go through a non-disclosure and all, and and then, you know, typically you look at the idea and you know that um, it's it's it can't work for any number of reasons, and those those don't go that far. So, we've we've had uh, quite a few of those meetings, believe me. Well, and, and there's a lot to be said too for uh, a type of min minimalism in work zones. Um, having the things that you need to have out there, having the things that have been proven to reduce speeds or, or create a safer environment and not having anything else, uh, anything else can actually become a distraction and take away from the work zone. 
if you just keep adding more things. They talk about, especially in the urban areas, the uh, what is it? They call it like noise. Um, it's like ambient, uh, too many signs, and it just things get confusing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this actually brings us to uh, the the birth of the rumble strips. Do you want to? Uh, I've heard this story before, but you want to expound on the the story of when you first came up with the rumble strips? Yeah, it, it's uh, sure because this. This is um, uh, what's what's neat about this is that this was not our idea. The only reason why we got involved in this is because we had a relationship with um, with the traffic engineer and happened to be in Kansas. And uh, sort of at the end of the day, it's the questions asked. So, hey, anything going on out there? You having any problems? And this was back in 2004. And he said, "Yeah, as a matter of fact, I've got a stretch of road that um, I'm, I'm having um, uh, some fatal crashes on. In fact, they had, I think it was upwards of nine fatalities over about a two to three week period on this one stretch of road that, that had a work zone. And he, he said he was very frustrated because he, being a traffic engineer, knew the MUTCD, set up the work zone." Perfectly had all all the all the necessary signs, all of the the, the, the right pavement markings, uh, the the traffic control items, the barrels, cones, arrow boards, message panels, everything that was required was there. And he says, doesn't mean anything. People don't see it. He said, I I really need to get into the car and grab the driver by the lapels and shake them. He said, I need a temporary portable rumble strip, and if you can make one that works, you're going to save a lot of lives. So our national sales manager, hearing that, came back, and in our next new products meeting, tells the story. And so we kind of go, huh, what's going on out there? What's, uh, and these were end-of-queue crashes involving trucks. Mm-hmm. Um. So then that was in 2004. So we, uh, being a plastics company, thought, well, I don't think there's much we got in our, uh, in our bag of tricks that might work as a temporary? You mean you can't glue it down? You can't? Nope, it has to be temporary. So that was sort of the starting point that, uh, that day. And we went through... A whole lot of, of iterations before we even got one to sit on the road for a day. Uh, in fact, I equate it to those. I love those um, scenes of the of the airplane when when it was a new concept and and they they roll one out and it had like five wings over top of one another and it rolls and it and it, and it collapses under its own weight. This is kind of like what a rumble strip looked like in the beginning. We wired a mat together, which worked great when cars went over it. When a box truck went over it, it picked the mat up and went down the highway about 75 yards. <laughs> that was, I think that was version number one. And so we said, nope, nope, that's not going to work. we got to go to version number two. And we are now at versions, uh, I kind of lost count, but we're in version 70, I think it's 77 that 
when I say version, that's production samples tested in the live traffic. We've had that many different versions of it. Initially, the improvements were substantial, and as the as it got better, the 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 improvements. It's that law of diminishing returns. So we, uh, I think we started selling them in about 2008. Um, when we knew we really had a product was the first one that we had molded uh, out of urethane. We took it out to, I believe it was Missouri, and had it tested. And it worked uh, worked great. Brake lights come on. The engineers see the difference in how the traffic responds. And there was a lot of great discussion. And at the end of the day, our engineer was pulling it off the road, and it fell apart one day. And as he's pulling it off the road and, and, and it's coming in pieces, the engineer's going, you know, this is fantastic. I saw the brake lights come on. This is You're really onto something. And he looks down and he sees that it's in like five pieces. And he goes, oh, well, you're, you'll fix that. That's no problem. He, and then he just went on. He just kept talking. And our engineer was, was absolutely devastated. He said it's the most embarrassing thing he's ever done in his life. This is a brand new product that he takes out, and it can't even last one day. And the engineer didn't care. He came back and goes, our engineer came back and said, there, there is something going on out there because this should have been an absolute failure. And that engineer said, this is fantastic. He said, we're on to something. We need to make it better. Well, I see it all the time, too. I, I'm, I'm also a traffic control supervisor, so being out on the road, um, just doing like a lane closure or, or a lane shift uh, when you're not flatting, you can just watch the cars driving by and the people with the cell phones on their steering wheel or, you know, the worst case scenario is when the cell phone's on their lap and they're trying to do their cell phone, look up and down and... Um, you switch over the rumble strips and it's like night and day. Everybody's looking at the road. And, you know, uh, I've heard it said before too is, you know, imagine if you'd have a little black bots and um, any work zone you put that little black bots in would guarantee 100% attention. You know, how much would that little black bots be worth? And not only how much would it be worth, but how much work would you be willing to put forward to have that little black bots in your work zone? And, you know, it's immeasurable, obviously. You know, if you can actually get people's attention, um, what what's more important in the work zone than having those people's attention? It's it's a huge problem, Ben, and, and um, just came back from a conference in Virginia, and what they said there was that distracted driving has eclipsed um, driving under the influence. Uh as a uh, as in fatalities and crashes, so it's and it's only getting worse because we heck I see it. I'm not in work zones every day, but we've all been uh, we, a lot of us do drive to work and back, and y- uh, y- you don't go a day without without witnessing a uh, a distracted driver. It's 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 terrible, and it's only going to get worse until all these vehicles can drive us around flawlessly. You know, the, the data is already out on it, but just the amount of time it takes you n- not to check a text message or respond to an email or 
do anything else but just look at your phone. Just uh, the act of looking down at your phone and looking back up to the road, going 75 miles an hour, you know, you're, you're covering football fields and not looking at the road while you're driving. Um, it's just incredibly dangerous. And it, 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 it's, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better as far as, um, you know, people are already acting like driving is a, is a leisure activity and uh, it won't be an actual leisure activity until, you know, we have self-driving cars. But until that point, it, it is a fully engaged activity. Yeah, and it's we've seen a lot of the laws. That, uh, I know uh, state legislatures try and pass laws anti-distracted driving, and you can't use your cell phone, and you get two hundred dollar tickets or whatever. And I just I don't know whether the stats uh, prove out that that actually does any good. Uh, we all know it's not; you shouldn't do it. But I unfortunately the uh, the crash rates are going up in spite of additional laws. Well, so uh, with the rumble strips, I think they're a little bit of an exception. Um, I know California was able to get them through really quickly. Uh, but on average, I know this is kind of a hard thing to judge, but on average, what do you see as a life cycle from that first rendition um, to actual field Im implementation and uh, selling of the product? I think uh, it really it depends. If you're talking about the rumble strip, is is really a special case because it's such a an extreme environment that it has to survive in. Versus most everything else that we make is visual, so it just sits by the side of the road, whether it's an orange barrel or a Type Three barricade. So. I think the rumble strip, I mean, it, it, it's so much different that it took years and years and years and years. Even just to get it to last through one day took us uh, like four years. It's kind of embarrassing, actually, looking back. I'm thinking, really? It took you four years to get the thing to work? Whereas uh, Type 3 Barricade, we've got a concept for it. This is what it's going to look like. This is how it's going to function. Okay, that's good. Let's make one. And when you make it, uh, okay, send it out there, see if the marketplace likes it, but it's going to sit off the side of the road. It's going to be a good Type 3 because it's just going to sit there. Rubble Strip has had to function, and and that's that was what really took the time and the effort in, in the day-after-day trial and error, which is, uh, which is really all we had to go on. We had some theories on how how we could get it to work and what materials we should use, but but when you put everything goes everything changes when it gets out on a road and and you get a an eighty thousand pound truck hitting it at seventy miles an hour. Everything changes. Well, and 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 rubber is a rubber is a fairly new technology. So uh, it, it's you look at like architecture or even building roads, and it's been around for. A millennia you know ever since we can look back into history but rubber really only came about less than you know a hundred years ago it was uh during world war ii uh, we got our rubber supply cut off from southeast asia and in that we uh the, the government partnered up with several different companies to start manufacturing our own rubber 
And since we couldn't use uh, the, the actual rubber, we had to come up with a synthetic rubber. And that's when, you know, like the study of rubber first was conceived. Um, but when you look at like human history, we've only been playing with rubber compounds for, you know, the last um, 80 years which is very, very, very small. It's one generation. And so to go from that to be able to have this rumble strip actually stay in place is just a huge leap. I mean, uh, I know there's there's a ton of research going to uh, race cars as well and, and trying to get those tires as sticky and soft as they possibly can without having them tear apart. And um, it, it is kind of a, a new and interesting field. Uh, it, well, and, and to bridge that too, th there's a lot of new areas of research, uh, like bioengineering has only been around for, for 10 years. It's a, it's a brand new field. Are, are there any like areas of research or any new technologies that you guys are kind of keeping a, a peripheral vision on or, or kind of keeping an eye out on? Well, I still think there's more to be done with distracted driving, um, and whether it's a new technology, and it might be. Um, <clears throat> uh, some states have talked to us about um, intrusions, and so how to how to measure it, uh, how to obviously how to reduce it, which is of course the next step beyond the the rumble strip. You would hope that uh, rumble strips would straighten those intrusions out. And that, and that certainly might be the case. But another is they just don't know how, how to measure uh, intrusion. So that, and whether or not that's uh, you're looking at radar or some sort of a electronic uh, measuring device, that that could be uh, that could be one area. Um, just in staying within the work zone. I think autonomous cars will eventually impact, and probably already has. I know California; they have these round buttons that um, that the um, self-driving cars that I guess it can't recognize. So that's some of this has already started to happen. Uh, I believe that was in California. Yeah, they they had a choice: either it was the it was the buttons or the paint, but they couldn't do both. And they went with the paint. Yeah, so somebody makes a rule, and all of a sudden, if you're making buttons, it's not a good day. <laughs> well, and, and there, there's this uh, really interesting pattern that I've seen a couple times where you create software, and then that software starts dictating how you create hardware. And then that hardware actually starts changing the environment around it. Um, uh, for example, you see like uh, Amazon, you know, they, they started off just as a software company. It was, it was purely software, it was online sales, it was online e-commerce. And then from there, they actually have made huge advances in robotics um, in the way they store all their different items based on the size to maximize their capacity in a warehouse. And so these robots that are moving these packages around um, are become incredibly advanced. And then from there, these robots are actually changing the way they store these items in their shelves. So there's this, this kind of progression. And I really think that we're going to see that on our roads as well. We're going to see uh, 
things that we can't really foresee. So we're going to see autonomous vehicles wanting to change the roads in ways that we have never thought of before. I, I imagine. Uh, I, that's my little uh, prophecy right there. Indeed, and we're trying to we're trying to uh, I guess uh, keep our nose into the autonomous vehicle discussions, and and it's a lot of things are I think a lot of things are going to change. It's it's going to take a while. I know they've had some setbacks uh, with the Uber crash and the fatal accident. So they've got um, even with lidar and all kinds of fancy cameras, uh, they still the. The autonomous car still not still did not recognize the pedestrian. So there, there's definitely uh, a long a long time here until we're all sitting in self-driving cars reading the newspaper. Yeah, I think the most alarming uh, recent autonomous crash was the one. Um, I'm blanking on the place. I believe it was Nebraska, uh, but the situation was. Uh, uh, a Tesla car just ran into a fire truck that was parked in the middle of the road with his lights flashing, you know, bright red fire truck. There was no sun setting in the background. Um, you know, with the Uber driver, the I, you can see in the footage that the lady did jump out at the last second. I don't know if a, a human driver could have avoided that situation. Um, and with some of the previous Tesla crashes, they have been um, the the you know the one that happened on the east coast was you know a white truck um, completely across the road so there's nothing immediately on the road in front of the Tesla driver it was just the hood level and there's the sun setting behind it so there was there's some um, mitigating factors in, in in some of those other crashes but with the fire truck it was just you know a bright red fire truck in the middle of the road and um, that there is a long way to go, you know. A lot of people will say that the self-driving cars just have to drive better than humans. They don't have to drive perfect, but it seems like there's a lot more. There's a much higher level of expectation for self-driving cars because it's not, you know, any one person made some mistake. It isn't reflected upon all people. But if one self-driving car makes a mistake, it is reflected upon that entire manufacturer's line of self-driving cars. Well, yeah, I guess because you could say that the software, if the software is all the same, then the likelihood is that that may be replicated. Yeah, that that specific mistake is, um, you know, if it happens once, it's across all their vehicles, so it could happen potentially very easily again. Um, the the one huge advantage, though, that I have to say for self-driving cars is any one car has the potential to teach all the other cars for the rest of their you know existence. So if any one car makes a mistake and they're able to pinpoint exactly why it made that mistake, then they're able to correct it on all their vehicles, which uh, humans can't don't have that capacity either can't change everybody <laughs> if only everybody drove like me then the world would be a better place <laughs> there you go <laughs> not really not really <laughs> okay well uh david it was great talking with you um where can uh people find you guys we are out of cleveland ohio the company is pss and you can 
Phone us at 1-800-662-6338 or look us up online at pss-innovations.com. That's pss-innovations.com. David, thank you so much for your time, and, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Reroute Safety Podcast. Uh, please do check out their website. Uh, they just unveiled the new Raptor. It's a deploying system for rumble strips. And just a friendly reminder, if you did enjoy this episode, please do share it with uh, anybody and everybody in the industry. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.